Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Tonight we have New York Times bestselling writer Todd Goldberg, who's the author, who is the author of Gangsterland, the crim, crim, crime-tinged novel Living Dead Girl, Fake Liar Cheat, and the popular Burn Notice series. You've all seen the TV show, right? Uh, his essays and short stories have been published in Best American Essays, Los Angeles Times, Salon, Wall Street Journal, E! and Juicy, among many others. He runs a popular podcast, Literary Disco. <laughs> and directs the low-residency MFA program in creative writing. <laughs> and writing for the performing arts. <laughs> Thank you, yeah. At the uh, UC Riverside. And joining him is David Ulin, author most recently of the novel Ear to the Ground, a 2015 Guggenheim Fellow. <laughs> His other books include Sidewalking, Coming to Terms with Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> Awards, 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 uh, <laughs> and Library of America's Writing Los Angeles, a literary anthology, which won more awards. Uh, and they're here to talk about Gangster Nation, uh, which, is, which uh, Brad Meltzer says is a razor. It will, sli- it will slice you open and reveal your insides, and like the best of Todd Goldberg's work, I was wondering what it'll show you everything you are at your core. Yes. It sounded better when I wrote that. <laughs> Here they are. Wow, thank you, everybody. Thanks for coming. It's like like this is your life in here. It's like every stage of my existence is represented in this room. Uh, But thanks for coming. Thanks, uh, Sky, for having us. Thanks, uh, CounterPoint, for providing alcohol and cupcakes. And uh, David, thanks for coming downstairs from your bedroom to... uh, My bedroll, my bedroll, and my my campfire are up there. So. <laughs> it's now David Ewan's Skylight Books. Right. If anyone wants some Franks and Beans or something, can <laughs> we got it all set up up, up there. So um, Dan said we couldn't drink whiskey, but he did bring wine. He did supply us with wine. So. That was very nice of him. And there's nothing stopping us from. I brought, we, I brought glasses. Yeah, if we wanted to drink some Johnny Walker Double Black. Oh. So not just black. It's hard boiled. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right, so we're going to um, start by you reading a few pages? Is that Very few pages, yeah. Very few because pages. I think as I, the people in the room know one thing about me. It's that I hate going to readings. <laughs> but Dan said I had to read stuff in case someone came in and didn't know who I was. They might be excited by the things that I had to say, and maybe they'd buy the book. And... Right. Dan's got a car painting, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> right, right. So I'm, I'll read like for like three minutes. Okay, great. Three to five. And then we'll talk for a bit, and then we'll rope you guys into some... Yeah. So you guys have a couple options. Do you want to hear about... um, How about about a wedding? You guys want to hear about a wedding? All right. We'll read a little bit about a wedding. It's a... It will be in poet voice. Thank you, Carolyn. <laughs> Upon the wedding, there was a gangster. Mother, why did we set upon these vows? Uh, so, 
this is from uh, chapter one. It, it's confusing to me to figure out what chapters are because when I turned in the book, it was it was like 475 pages long, um, and then my editor cut 400 pages from it, <laughs> and then I wrote a bunch of new stuff, and now it's in an order that I was not familiar with until frankly until it came out in print. Have you read the book? Well, you know what? I just listened to the audio book. <laughs> Which is quite good. I listened to the audiobook because the, the, the first time the, the audiobook came out for Gangster Land, the, uh, the narrator of the audiobook got my character's last name pronounced wrong. And so I, I had to confirm it through 12 hours of listening that every single time he said it wrong, I was pissed off. Um, but this time he got it right, so that's good. Um, so this is from a wedding. It's in chapter one. It's going to reveal nothing of um, terrible spoilerness to you guys. Um, but it will let you know... For those of you who read Gangster Land and you've been wondering where the Rabbi David Cohen has been for the last couple of years, this will, this will let you know. Naomi and Michael were exchanging a series of vows that David was pretty sure were cribbed from a pop song. The three of them stood under a chuppah in the Rosen's backyard, if you could call anything with an acre of grass with an outdoor wine bar surrounding a private lake, a yard. The Rosens lived in the vineyards at Summerlin, a few doors down from Benny Savone and his family, in an exclusive development that was supposed to evoke the Italian countryside, except with German cars and Mexican domestic staff. <laughs> David had never been to Italy, never even made it to the Venetian Hotel on the Strip to ride in a gondola on account of the facial recognition cameras all the casinos had. They weren't looking for average bad guys, by and large, but Benny had told him it was a no-go zone. Still, David couldn't help but wonder if there were housing developments being built on the Amalfi Coast modeled after Las Vegas. Italians living in peach-colored track homes with brown lawns. <laughs> David viewed weddings as sacred affairs and took his role seriously. Of all the vows he'd taken in his own life, it was the only one that had actually stuck. And if Naomi and Michael wanted to seal their love by quoting Kid Rock in front of a few hundred of their closest friends and family members, who was he to judge? Those were just words. A vow was something you believed in, and that didn't require spoken words. Besides, it was David's job to give them a true blessing, the sense that what they were doing had some continuity with history. So even though they weren't particularly faithful Jews, and they exchanged bullshit vows, at least David was doing his part, which was the problem. There was going to come a time, pretty soon, if David had his way, when Rabbi David Cohen would be replaced again by Sal Cupertine. And by no fault of their own, Naomi and Michael's marriage would be a sham. David's blessings upon them, little more than a minor fraud perpetrated by a professional mob killer. This otherwise mild summer day, a footnote in a series of criminal acts. And no matter how much David wanted Naomi and Michael to have a good life, free of the shit and violence and deception he'd been party to since he was 10 years old, man, one day, there they would be, right in it, forever. David could see the Dateline episode already. <laughs> Keith Morrison, sitting across from Naomi and Michael, asking, that they'd ever noticed anything odd about Rabbi David Cohen. A man they trusted to bless their union, bless their unborn child. Hadn't he seemed different? 
Though, of course, it wasn't as if Naomi's father would want anyone poking too far into his life. What with his business relationship with Benny Savone? A couple years earlier, Jordan had become infatuated with a dancer at Benny's club, The Wild Horse, and ended up owing $100,000, plus an increasing vig for lap dances and VIP room hand jobs, which wasn't exactly a check he could write without his wife noticing. So now Benny was a silent partner in some of Jordan's real estate holdings out on what used to be the butthole end of North Las Vegas, down on Craig Road, but which was suddenly a hot property. Trilogy and a dozen other developers taking, talking about building their own master plan communities out there. 2002 promising to be the year that everyone moved into supermax prison complexes in the desert, replete with open concept floor plans, travertine floors, and armed rent-a-cops patrolling 24-7. So maybe it wouldn't be Naomi and Michael on camera. Maybe it would be Rochelle and Lee. Andrea and Brent, Tara and Neil. <laughs> How many couples had he married in the last three years? 20? 30? Which didn't make David feel any better. His entire life as Sal Cupertine had been lived as a ghost, and now here he was, rolled up in the lives of common civilians. And then 400 pages later, there's a cliffhanger. <laughs> I recognize a lot of names in this book. <laughs> Schumacher, Dick and Sheets. Yeah, you know, here's the thing. If you know me and I'm writing a book, if you've had any email contact with me the day that I'm, I happen to be writing that book, you're either going to get fucking killed or you're going to be just mentioned in passing. You, know, you can auction that stuff off now. I should right? start doing yeah, that. Start doing yeah. that. So there'd be good income stream. <laughs> Not a bad idea. This book game might peter out for me soon. Exactly. All right, so there's lots to talk about. Yes. Um, at some point, we do have to talk about Las Vegas. Okay. Um, I'm happy to do that. The book takes place there. Um, but I want to start with the obvious question, which is the, the mechanics or the challenges of writing a sequel. Did you know, uh, at what point did you know you were going to write a sequel? Was it there when you were writing Gangsterland, or did you think that was standalone and then the sequel developed? And, and we'll Yeah, so to be perfectly honest, after I finished, um, after, so Gangsterland is based on a short story called Mitzvah. Um, that was in my book of short stories that none of you read called Other Resort Cities. So the, the people, my wife and four of my students and David and people I employ all purchased it, so I appreciate that. Um, and the rest of you fuckers, I don't know where you were in 2009, but that book's available on Kindle and Amazon, I'm sure. Um, and I will look at my Amazon ranking when I get home. Um, so after I finished that short story, I had a conversation with uh, Gina Frangello and Stacey Beerline, my editors at the time, and they both said, you know, this is a book, there's a, there's a book in this character, and it took me several years before I actually had the time. I mean, I had a champagne problem, which was that I had other books under contract to write, so I, I didn't get a chance to write Gangsterland for another five years after I wrote that short story. But when I sat down to write Gangsterland, I knew then that it was going to be at least two books. Um, but as I finished Gangsterland, I realized it was going to be at least three books. <coughs> now here's the caveat, of course, is that I was really lucky in that I, I sold the book uh, to some very nice television producers, and if they make a TV show out of it, it'll be 19 books. <laughs> but you'll be hiring it out. You'll yeah. Be, you know. I'll, I'll, 
<laughs> I will be hiring out my own stuff. Like I do like five Yeah, right? I'm going yeah. to do that. Yeah. Um, but you know, I I I imagine it will be three books. Um, but the world that I've set up, I've, I've also set it up that in such a way that if I wanted to, I could write about the people in this family going forward in time and going backward in time. Um, but what I don't want to do, and what I've never wanted to do, is turn it into just your regular mafia novel. You know, part of what I've always done with this character is poke fun at the tropes of organized crime fiction and organized crime movies and TV shows and all that stuff. Um, and my worry has always been, and it was this, I had this worry as I was working on the sequels, well, I don't want to just end up writing The Godfather. You know, I want to make sure that my interest is still that I'm satirizing this thing that we all romanticize still and not become that thing. Um, which, you know, that's, that's a difficult concept for me to always keep in my head when I'm trying to, you know, write crimes and murder and all this stuff. Um, but I think the thing that keeps me rooted in that, um, other than Dan calling like every 25 minutes and saying, don't fuck it up, um, <laughs> is that I'm mortified by the things that I write about. Um, I'm mortified by organized crime. I'm mortified by criminal behavior. And I never find it attractive. So the challenge in writing a sequel for me was to continue to show this mortification that I have with our collective desire to read about these things. And I'm not saying don't buy the book. Um, I mean, if we could lock the doors, that'd be great. Um, but to also make sure that I wasn't falling into the same trap that other people had in the process. Um, but you're going to read all about this because I just told Carolyn I was going to write an essay about this for her in the LA Times at some point. So, <laughs> so you know, I, I think the challenge of the sequel is the is the difference between writing a sequel versus writing a series. And I had written a series before. You know, I wrote I wrote five Burn Notice books, but those are evergreen. You can read those in any order. And and Michael Weston, you know, he doesn't his moles don't grow. You know, he doesn't. Doesn't suddenly have prostate infections. Get that up there. Yeah. Oh, we haven't even broken out the whiskey. Yet. I know. I'm just gonna say. <laughs> I'm gonna say Hitler right now. <laughs> so, the challenge I think for me to continue to write sequels and not a series is to make each book better and to have each book both stand alone and feed off the other ones. Right. And I want to ask you about the standalone part. Like one of the things I was, I'm, I'm aware of whenever I read a sequel, and I was definitely aware of here is kind of the sort of subtlety of dropping in backstory for mm -hmm. readers who might not have read the first book. Right. So in terms of, normally when you're writing a standalone, that's not obviously not a concern. So right. as far as just that in the writing process, does that come up, is that is that a revision thing? Is that an edit thing that you, you, you're sort of planting those seeds later? Or does that emerge organically through the storytelling? It, um, it's a little bit of all those things. You know, it, it was the one thing I didn't know how to do as a writer. Um, because I didn't, I had never had to do it before. I'd never had to build in the backstory to feed the other people that were getting into it. So actually, I went and I looked at successful sequels um, and also unsuccessful sequels to see how other people had done it. What do you consider to be an unsuccessful? Well, I'm not going to say that. I, I actually will because this person's dead. So Elmore Leonard wrote a sequel to Out of Sight called Road Dogs. It was horrible, and he's not. He's not with us, so he's not. Dutch won't come after us. Um, but he had said in an interview, I, I remember reading this and thinking, oh, this is a bad reason to write a sequel. He's like, well, I did like that movie George Clooney made, so maybe George Clooney would like to play this character again. I'm going to write this other book. 
And it was, you know, had none of the allure of Out of Sight, which is one of my all-time favorite books, not just crime novels, but just books. I just absolutely love that one. Um, and so I, I saw what he did there, and I didn't, I didn't think he did it particularly well. Um, so, you know, a lot of the backstory stuff I front-loaded in, and part of this is just a, a process thing, an editorial process, where when, when you're working on a book that's already under contract, you know, I, I can have a conversation with my editor and say, man, I don't really know where to put this backstory stuff. I'm dumping it here and I'm dumping it there. And my editor can say, well, look, let's get to the end and then we'll move it around where we need it dramatically, know what it is you want to have in there. And then as I'm reading it and as you're reading it and as we're talking about it, we can figure out how much is too much. And so it ended up being that I had way too much of the filling in. Um, because every time I introduce a character from the book previous, I'd be like, and what you might not have realized about this minor character, Greybeard, is that he is a, oh, Jesus Christ. Um, but a part of it for me as a writer was that I didn't remember half the shit that had happened to these characters. And so I would go back and I would read the stuff again and write it again so that I could get back into their skin. So it was also an exercise of putting that information in there so that I could reimagine the character in full for myself. I mean, it, it, I mean, it's still just typing, of course, but like the sequel thing is hard because you don't want it to suck. It has to be as good as the previous one, or everyone's like, "Well, the first one was better." But the thing that saved me, I have to tell you, the the, the thing that saved me from in the writing of the sequel um, is that my fantastic, lovely editor, who said we couldn't talk about him, <laughs> said to me. You know, what's your favorite sequel? And I said, The Empire Strikes Back. He said, All right, write The Empire Strikes Back. And I was like, I will write The Empire Strikes Back. I will do that. I can do that. I can write The Empire Strikes Back. Sure. With Han and I, you know, I can do that. Yeah, yeah. Lee Bracket, right? Yeah. So, um, all right, so it's interesting that you said that you didn't remember because I actually find that one of the challenges of reading a sequel, because it is also three years mm -hmm. for a reader, is I also, I mean, I remember the, the, narrative, but there were bits and pieces I felt like I, I, if I was more diligent interviewer, I would have gone back and reread Gangsterland, but I didn't, but I was like, oh, I should go back and reread Gangsterland to see how this is all playing out. So all of those little, um, the sort of, the, those, that backstory stuff was really helpful. The little thumbnails? Yeah, yeah for, a, for, for, for a forgetful reader. So thank you. You know what, the, I have to tell you guys the, the coolest thing, so just when I started to write the book, um, I, did this, I did a talk at a Hadassah group, which is a Jewish book group. And they made this like dedicated Bible for the reading group that had everyone's names and the cars they drove and had trivia and had like all the Talmud quotes and the Gangsterland in it. And, but it was like it was like 40 pages long. It had pictures of where they thought things were in Las Vegas. And I kept that on my desk. And I'd be writing. I'd be like, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> ah, 27. So all the inconsistencies are their fault. Yeah, completely. <laughs> so perfect. Um, I want to go back to this. This the satire, this, mm -hmm. sat this, this this satirizing thing, which is to say that, you know, yeah, you're satirizing it, and you're satirizing sort of suburban Jewish mm -hmm. culture, right? Rabbinical culture in some way. But if it was just sort of poking fun, I mean, these characters, even the mobsters, are three dimensional. Sal has, or or David. I mean, you go back and forth depending on sort of what headspace he's right. in and how you refer to him. You know, have 
serious concerns, whether physical concerns or emotional concerns, family concerns. So they're existing both as kind of objects of, of satire, but also as, as three-dimensional humans, right? Without that, we wouldn't have the emotion. We wouldn't have the emotional right. book. Like I'm rooting for Sal or David Which or whoever he is in the moment yeah. throughout the book, it's right? I want him to get away with it. Right. It's yeah. terrible. Yeah. I've, I've, not I've, terrible. <laughs> I got an email from someone recently who said, I just wanted that FBI agent to die a terrible death. And I was like, well, yeah. this is where we are as a country. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Although I'm much more, uh, I have a much more positive sense of the FBI now. Yes, more than I did about 10 months ago. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I think the, the, the rounded character thing, um, it probably comes from this desire I have as a, as a crime writer to take some of the things that I learned writing literary fiction, um, which is that I, you know, I try to imbue every single character with um, deep existential pain and suffering. Um, it all goes back to their mothers, you know, the cab drivers, his fucking mother. Um, but also, you know, I think my my concern always with crime fiction is that. Death doesn't matter a lot of times in crime novels. But uh, someone dies and they get vaporized and they're like a red shirt on Star Trek. And the older I've gotten, the more I find that distasteful as just a sort of a human being that even these fake people, we don't consider that every single person has a mother or a father or a brother or a sister or whatever and that their death matters to someone beyond themselves. And so, Every single time someone is shot or killed or something bad happens to someone or someone gets sick in these books, I like to show that ripple, you know? just Even if you just see, see the tiniest ripple out from what that thing means. I won't give you a, a this is not, a, I won't spoil anything, but there's a character who dies in this book and at some point later on, you meet a relative of this character and you realize that, oh, I mean, I hope you do. Uh, I hope you realize this, that oh my god, this person is ruined by this thing that has happened. Mm -hmm. They don't even know it yet, and they're ruined. Um, and so that's, that's that thing I try to do by, by making these characters a, a bit more round than you might have with a, a typical you know, antagonist, protagonist in a crime novel. Um, because it's, it's sort of my obsession that, that when bad shit happens to people, that we don't just pretend that it's a cartoon. Um, that, Bad shit is real and it exists for everyone, and that it's my duty, I think, when I write about the history of crime in America, which Gangster Nation is also about at, at, the, at some point, um, that we recognize that there's a shared trauma from other people's bad deeds. Do you do research? The book takes place largely in Las Vegas, um, but also partly in Chicago, partly in Florida, I mean, there's moments mm -hmm. in, in all these places. Um, how do you... Did you research it? Did you? Yeah. I mean, what kind of research do you do? More than just a Google search? Yeah. <laughs> Most of the, well, a lot of times, here's my main research thing. Google image, right? Yeah. yeah. Here's, here's the big thing for those of you that the aspiring writers in the room. This is my big research thing. I'll be at my desk writing my little murder fiction, and I'll say, hey, Wendy, what's like, what's it like a little city in Florida? Because my wife grew up in Florida, and she'll say, I haven't lived in Florida since I was 17 years old. Look, there, you have Google Maps. Okay, all right. Well, is this a nice city? Is this a good city to put things in? And then Wendy will come in and she'll say, what do you want? What is wrong? What do you want? And I'll say, I just need like, a place. And also, 
Would someone go to the MAC counter at a department store and could you tell me the color for a lipstick? It's just like, spice, spice, just say spice. So that's a lot of my research is my lovely, my poor lovely wife. Um, long suffering. I long think suffering. Well, well yeah, but the other part is, you know, when I, I, I try to make the violence as realistic as possible, there is a period of time. So in the opening, it's not only the opening chapter, it's chapter four, but there's a scene where someone gets their face banged in pretty badly. And for, for about a week, we, it would alternate where I would slam Wendy's face into a bathroom sink and then she would slam my face into a bathroom sink. And be like, yeah, that, that sounds about right. Um, is there a video? I think there might be Facebook updates on it. Um, but no, I do a ton of research um, in addition to that sort of, you know, the silly stuff. You know, I'm not, I'm not much of a Jew, um, other than, you know, the full Ashkenazi that you see here. Um, so, you know, I have to read all the Jewish holy books because I want to know um, what this guy who's pretending to be a rabbi would know at any given time in his journey to become a fake rabbi. So that when he's presented with a situation, I know what he would know, Talmudically speaking. Um, but then, you know, I also want to know about how Native American gangs in Wisconsin move drugs through the powwow system. Um, and I want to know how cartels and uh, organized crime families have worked over generations and why they are no longer working together anymore, why organized crime is falling apart. I want to know how, when there's social tumult, how gangs and crime families profit from it. So all this stuff, I sort of have like an idea, like, well, this is how I think it would work. I want to make sure I actually know it, so I do all the reading. Um, and then I had this great experience. My, my brother, who's here somewhere, um, was like, hey, there's this fantastic conference called the Writers Police Academy. We, we got to go. We're, we're going to be shooting guns and doing pit stops and, you know, all kinds of crazy shit at this thing. It's, you know, it's hands-on. I was like, that is something I am very interested in. I would like to shoot guns. Um, and I found out as a completely nonviolent pacifist that I really enjoyed shooting guns, um, which was a, probably a problem, because now like I'm, I watch MSNBC at the end of the night, I'm like, I need a gun. Um, but while I was up there, I had this middling interest in my mind about writing about Native American casinos, particularly in the Midwest, uh, and about how Native American gangs co-opt Bloods and Crips. So there's these, you know, on reservation land and you know throughout the Midwest, there are people calling themselves Bloods and Crips who are not African American. And I was like, that is fucking weird. How do they do that? Like, what's the process? Like, how do you decide that like, you're working on a dirt farm in Nebraska and you're like, I'm a Crip. I'm a rolling six Crip. You're like, you are not. <laughs> were in Omaha. <laughs> and so, fortunately, when I was at this Writers Police Academy, there were all these tribal police officers and all these tribal gang experts there, and these, you know, like, tribal shot callers rolling through, and I'm like, there was a meeting of the native mob going on at this hotel, and I was like, this is the best tax write-off I've ever had in my entire life. <laughs> and so I was able to come home from this experience and say, I got to rewrite a lot of my book, and that's why, wherever my editor is, that's why it was four months late. Um, and then I didn't write in November. Um, or December. Or December. So, yeah, so, you know, 
a lot of January was yeah. lost. February and March were kind of weeks. March was not a great month. <laughs> I remember April, the Festival of Books was cool, but that was about it. But it's good, because he's a Democrat. Yeah. So we're good. Everything's yeah. good. Yeah. yeah. But but this is, I mean, in all seriousness, the this sense that we are experiencing a crime family as we are living in this world is something I think about a lot and thought about when I was writing the book. You know, every time something fucked up happens with Donald Trump's family, and they're like, oh, it's like, it's like the Godfather. You know, that's, you know, that's Fredo. That, that they're all fucking they're Fredo. Fredo. <laughs> it's not the Godfather, because like, Vito, Don Vito was smart. Right, there's, there's no Michael Corleone here. It's all Fredo. Don Jr. is Michael Corleone. That's the problem with that's, this. Yeah, that's the problem. It's, like, it's not like the Godfather, because Michael Corleone didn't get caught. <laughs> Yeah. Michael Corleone lied to Congress and got away with it. Yeah, yeah. And intimidated the witness. Yes, yeah, he was fine. Okay. So, going back to the research thing, because I'm an even worse Jew than you. Right. I read, I mean, I had this experience in the first book, too. I'm reading these books and going, you're just making up this Talmud. Right? So, like, how much of that stuff is actually from the Talmud? And how much of it is just you at 1 a.m. going, like, this sounds kind of remotely Talmud? If, if it says in the book, as the Talmud says, that's in the Talmud. Um, there are sometimes he says things that sound like the Talmud, but it's Bruce Springsteen. It's Springsteen. Right. <laughs> Everything dies, yeah. that's a fact. Everything yeah. dies, that's a fact, that's Springsteen. There's a meanness in the world, that's Springsteen. Like, you can tell what specific album I was listening to on Spotify by which Springsteen lyric he quotes. Oh, Springsteen, he's Jewish, you know. Yeah, yeah he's, he's about as Jewish as I am. Um, but, you know, that the, the Talmud stuff, that is, you know, he says it, but it doesn't mean that his interpretation of it at the time is the actual one. So he just says whatever thing from the Talmud that he wants in that moment, but it doesn't mean that that's the law. And you know, there was a, I, I do talk sometimes with Jewish groups, as you might imagine I do them mostly out of fear. Um, <laughs> and I was at this one, and this guy was like, you know, his interpretation of this and Gangsterland was wrong. And I was like, of course it's wrong. He's not a rabbi. <laughs> He's a hitman pretending to be a rabbi. But the, the I think the, the thing that happens is, and this is you know this was my hope is that as you're reading, you forget that he's not an actual rabbi. And so when he says things from the Talmud or the Torah or you know he quotes some sort of Holocaust stuff, that you're believing that what he's saying is actually true. And a lot of times it is not. It is from the Talmud, it's from the Torah, it's from this thing, it's from that thing, but it's not the actual answer, it's just what suits him at the time. And, uh, you know, I don't want you guys not to like South Cupertine Rabbi David Cohen, but he's a, he's a man with some challenged moral fibers. <laughs> yeah, but also in his weird way with a moral center, right? And, right? and I think it's interesting because you do describe him depending on where he's situated mentally and emotionally, both ways. Sometimes in the narrative he's referred to in the third person narrative mm -hmm. as David Cohen, and right. sometimes he's referred to as, as Sal. And so I'm curious about that. I mean, you know, a, as a kind of device, I think it's really effective, but it really kind of encodes into the narrative his dual. Right. Right. He is a rabbi in a certain sense. He, he becomes is. the yeah. rabbi. He becomes right? the rabbi. He becomes the rabbi. Yeah. Well, and that's that's the the arc of this character for these I, what I hope will be three books. Um, is that the more he pretends to be a rabbi, he becomes a rabbi. So in Gangster Land, the, the delineation between South Cooper and David Cohen was about 
uh, David Cohen and the Scott Cooper team. In Gangster Nation, it's about 80-20, David Cohen to Scott Cooper team. Um, how the third book will be, I'm not sure. Uh, not to say he lives, he might die, you don't know. You don't, don't, you don't know. You don't know, actually. Um, Sequel doesn't need to have the same No, it doesn't. I'm going to stop talking about these books now. Um, but every single character in these books, and in in both of them, have a dual nature. Um, and every single character has a mirror of some other character in the books. And it's, it's part of what I try to do by showing that organized crime and organized religion and organized government share many of the same traits uh, and many of the same problems. Um, and that, they, that the worst people end up rising up in, in all three of them. Um, so, you know, I want to show those dual natures of things. I want, I want to show that everyone is two people. Um, you know, who I am sitting here today talking to you guys is different than who I am when David and Wendy and uh, Lee and I were having dinner, but not too much. We're just not looking over our shoulders as much. So when we talk shit here at dinner, we, we, we look. Here we're, here we're talking straight. Um, but, you know, we all have our private lives, we all have our public lives, we all have our professional lives, and those things can be three entirely different facets of our, of our lives. And so, in writing the narration for this book, from a couple different perspectives, I wanted to show how people change based on where they are physically and where they are emotionally at any given time. The book has four narrators in it um, at, at different points. Um, and all of them, at some point, become someone else. Mm -hmm. Now, the book takes place in 2001. Um, it involves, I'm trying to be as vague as possible, but it involves certain cataclysmic events yes. that took place in the fall of 2001. Did you know that, I mean, again, it's part of the, the time frame coming off of the first book. Mm -hmm. Did you know that 9-11 um, that was going to be, at what point did you know 9-11 was going to be a part of the book? And it does play a kind of yeah, dramatic role in the It narrative. does, it yeah. does. Um, I, knew, I knew pretty much as soon as I got done with Gangster Land um, that 9-11 was going to play a role because I knew that I had ended the book in 1999 and I knew that I wasn't going to pick up the sequel three months later. I was going to have you know, some time elapse uh, so that so Gangsterland itself ends with Benny Savone going to jail and Rabbi David Cohen essentially rising up and taking over the entire synagogue and all of the operations. So I wanted to have a leap of time of a year or two so that you would understand that he'd been successful in the job. And it wasn't just him like, oh, now i got to make more money doing this, now i got to raise tuition, now i got to do that. Um, I wanted to show the passage of mundane time. And by the time we get to him in the fall of 2001, he has grown comfortable and fat in his job, essentially. And we all know what's coming. We all know that after September 11th, someone who doesn't have the right ID can't get on a plane, can't get a prescription, you know, can't, you can't buy Sudafed at, um, at the market. All these things that are about to happen for this guy. How I knew specifically that was going to be the case um, happened about 20, happened uh, three years ago tonight, David, um, you and I were sitting at the Barnes & Noble. Um, Is exactly tonight? It, it's exactly tonight. Three years ago, exactly tonight. So three years from now, tonight, we'll be doing this. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I'll pencil that in. We were, we were sitting at the Barnes & Noble uh, talking, and my lovely wife raised her hand, and she said, could this happen, all these things happen after the advent of social media? What's he going to do once there's social media? And that, 
I remember sitting there thinking, that's a goddamn good question. And then my other question was, why didn't you just ask me about the car? <laughs> and then I just sort of had a dawning realization that, oh God, I got to set this book during 9-11 when the reader will know he's trapped before he knows he's trapped. Yeah. And let that be a, a plot point that makes all the things that he does seem like, dude, you don't even know. You got to get out now. You got to go. You got to go. You got to go. Um, and you'll find out, you know, right about page 275, like what happens with that. Um, but, you know, the, the, the larger social issue about 9-11 that I wanted to look at um, was about the acceptance of giant criminal acts in the face of smaller criminal acts that we've accepted for many, many years. That, um, you know, black youths can be killed in any city in gang violence in the hundreds, and it's not a national tragedy, it's not at the top of the news every day. You accumulate the amount of gang death that has happened in big cities in America for the last 30 years, and it's thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Um, and so I wanted to be able to draw that juxtaposition. Now it sounds like a you know a fairly weighty topic to take on a little crime novel, um, but I wanted you know these are the things that I'm fascinated by: um, our capacity as human beings to do great harm to ourselves and then ignore it, <laughs> you know. Um, and then what can't we ignore um, when we view someone who as an interloper who comes and kills us? We that that's a bigger thing. We kill ourselves. Yeah, you know, we're just kids shooting each other. Um, and so I wanted to examine that. And I wanted to be able to use Rabbi David Cohen, who has killed hundreds of men in his life, and put him in a position where he has to answer for other people, and he has to help protect the Jews who are scared, and you know, all this stuff. That I had a, a, a great, awful moment when I was writing the book, thinking about these things that he was going to have to do to, to help sort of ease scared Jews after 9-11, where I read this amazing article that was in um, the Tablet, which is a, a Jewish magazine. It's like highlights for Jews. <laughs> very similar. Find a toaster. Find the rugula. Um, that's a little game we play at the house. Find the rugula. Um, but there's this great article about a conservative Jew about why he wasn't voting for Trump. And he, there was this amazing line, and he said, the mob always comes for the Jews. And I was like, oh, that, I mean, that helps me in a lot of ways, but it also helps the, my understanding of how people view sort of cataclysm when it becomes about their culture and not just their sort of ethical beliefs. Right. It also allows you as a writer to do that, that, that great thing where you and the reader, the writer and the reader kind of knows stuff that the character doesn't know yet. Right. Because we have the historical hindsight. He's in the moment, so he can't possibly see it. Right. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, that's why I love the TV show The Americans. Are there any staff writers of The Americans in the room right now? I mean, that's the great thing is like you watch The Americans and you're like, this is, don't do any of this stuff. That wall is coming down really soon. None of you need to die because now we're friends. Right. Yeah. Sort of. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, we yeah. share a government. Right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So the other thing that setting it in 2001 allows you to do is talk about Vegas pre-2008. Yes. Right? So all that stuff that you're talking about, all the real estate stuff, the North Las, the North Las Vegas stuff. I'm a fairly newly converted Vegas nerd, right? So um, is all in play. Oh, we also, you know, that that all went bye-bye right. during the during the crash. 
Um, I don't really have a Vegas question for you, just that you and I both have Vegas experience. Right. So, <laughs> um, so Vegas. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Kelly Lang. Um, <laughs> is she the one with the gray streak? Like this? No, that was Colleen. Oh, okay, right. We shouldn't yeah. talk about Kelly Lang. She's yeah. a great woman. Um, <laughs> well, I'm fascinated by Vegas because, particularly the suburbs of Las Vegas because they are, were just as big a prospecting town as the original strip of Las Vegas was. Um, you know, all these land developers built these giant mass gated communities on the outskirts of Las Vegas in Summerlin and Green Valley and Henderson. Um, basically, it looks like Orange County on the edges of Las Vegas. Master plan. Master plan. Um, Howard Hughes master planned Summerlin. Um, the Howard Hughes Corporation did. And at first, you know, they built these houses and they opened up like the first wave in 96, 97, somewhere in there. And it was going to be the most exclusive place you could ever live in. You know, they, they, they put in traffic circles before there were any people there, which is like, oh, it's, at first it's like, it's very British, but also really hopeful that people are going to show up in such masses that you need traffic circles. Um, and they built these places and they charged you know, huge amounts of money for these homes, and then the people didn't come, and so they dropped the prices, and the people bought them. They dropped them even more, and even more people bought them, and then it was all no-doc loans and cash buying on these houses, all of these dancers and uh, poker players and all these people, and people were prospecting all over Las Vegas, and by the time 2006, 2007 came along, and the, the rim of Las Vegas, all these beautiful starter mansions that people had bought for $250,000 and now it's $600,000 and then they were all worth nothing. And all those people just left. It was like the drain opened up and yeah. everyone left. But the the structures were all still there. All all the buildings, all the shopping, all that was still there with none of the people. Right. The master plan community with yeah. no community. With no community. Yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of grift that goes on in these master plan communities. I know I live in one. Um, and so I'm always fascinated by the uh, by the, the awful people that run homeowners associations. My brother excluded; he's the president of this. Uh, yeah, HOAs come in for a, a fairly consistent beating. Yes, I, I do. I do spend some time beating up on HOA communities. Um, but I, you know, I, I think I think land is such an ephemeral thing, and in Las Vegas, people are always thinking um, that they've that they're just about to hit the jackpot and there's a line in, in Gangster Nation and I, I'm terrible that I'm quoting myself here but I'm gonna do it because I feel like I'm not that kind of guy that can do that um, where Rabbi David Cohn is driving through Summerlin on 9-11 before the planes hit and he looks around and he thinks you know why didn't anyone just walk away from the machine with credit on it you know why is everyone in Vegas always betting all the credit they have that something better is going to come the next day. And I'm quoting myself really poorly, but I just listened to the audiobook. Um, and that's the thing about all these real estate developments in Las Vegas that I think are amazing is that they keep doing it. This is not something new that happened in Las Vegas. They, there's a rich history of them building things that no one wants and then blowing them up. Right. And so Vegas, I think, is, for me, um, a great place to examine the folly of American crime because real estate companies, mortgage lenders, uh, gardeners, 
water companies, people who put travertine floors in, they're all ripping you the fuck off. <laughs> and it's also, as you say in the book, um, we don't think of it this way, but you say it's more isolated in some ways than, than, than Hawaii, Hawaii yeah. right? Because it is this sort of, it's not even a place. I mean, it's multiple overlapping places, right? right. The strip was built where the strip was built because it was unincorporated right. and they didn't have to pay city, they didn't pay taxes. So, and it's in the middle of nowhere, right? Yeah. I mean, even you, you, even now, you drive to Las Vegas from LA and really it's like there is nothing until you hit Vegas. Yeah, and it is more isolated than Hawaii because on the Hawaiian Islands, you're always 20 minutes away from another large city. In Nevada, you gotta go from Vegas to Reno and then you gotta stop in Carson City in between. Um, but that that's it. Yeah. I mean, that is it. So there's hundreds and hundreds of miles of nothing but scrub, scrub desert. Yeah. And, and you know, there's really no, um, there's no economy of interest other than the, the gaming um, and resort living and, you know, opioids, <laughs> presumably. Um, and Red Rocks. And Red Rocks. And so, you know, Nevada's a strange place, but Nevada also, you know, has this huge Basque community and a huge Mormon community. Um, it's a it's strange, it's super rural, obviously. And so all these places that I've visited in Nevada, I, I, I'm now the uh, silver pen uh, writer of promise or something of the state of Nevada. I'm very famous in Nevada. Yeah, well, no, I, you know, I saw Gangsterland in, uh, there was an exhibit of Las Vegas literature at, at the UNLV library, and Gangsterland was very prominent. Yeah, I'm, I'm huge in... You're on the same, like, you and James Elroy were yeah, right together. Yeah, 20 mile radius, I'm a fucking superstar. Um, <laughs> but having now spoken to a lot of native Nevadans, you know, they, they have such great pride in their state because it is so wildly independent. It is still the Wild West in big parts of Nevada. And I find that ethos really compelling, um, if broken. <laughs> right. Well, I would like to congratulate the two of us for having made it through over a half an hour without really talking about Hitler's dick. <laughs> a wonderful accomplishment. That was done for you, Dan. And, and I think at this point, let's turn over some questions from uh, from the assembled masses. Yes, ma'am. So when you're talking about, talking about the isolation of Las Vegas, mm -hmm. do you think that helps uh, Rabbi David keep his cover? That, that he is isolated from others? Jewish communities in a pre-social media yes. era. Yeah, particularly with the Jewish community because the Las Vegas Jewish community is a big one, but it is a transient one. Um, it is, it, Las Vegas is something like the 10th largest Jewish community in the United States. It's something close to that. And there's, you know, a couple, I think there's 120,000 Jews in Las Vegas. There's a lot of them. Um, very Jewy, but only really one good deli. Um, it's surprising, and, it's, and no good bagels anywhere. It's a shitty bagel town. Um, let's talk about that for forty minutes. Um, but yeah, that isolation I, I think plays a big role in his ability to stay hidden for a time. Um, but the thing about Las Vegas in two thousand one is that it wasn't like Las Vegas is now. Um, it's not like Las Vegas will be in, in five years from two thousand one which is that you can't hide in Las Vegas anymore because paparazzi is everywhere. It's, you know, it is a place that people go to to take pictures of themselves constantly, which is something that I wish I had thought about in 2007 when I started to write about this character, uh, the problems I was going to have. But, you know, I think you can hide in a big city until such time your face is so famous that you can't. Um, and for a character like Sal Cooperteen, um, his notoriety is going to, you know, the way I view it, um, 
is somewhat similar to Whitey Bulger, which is if Whitey Bulger hadn't been caught when he had, he would have been. Um, because people would have started noticing him because his picture would be more places. You know, you'd reverse image search some in the background of a photo and you know an old picture of Whitey Bulger would show up in the Boston Globe or whatever. Um, so he's allowed to hide now, but he won't be able to hide forever. If you have any ideas about how to fix that, do let me know. <laughs> Other questions? We've stunned them in silence. Can you talk a little bit about sort of how you approach genre fiction? Because you sort of brought that up a little bit, as and how you how you utilize it as an opportunity to sort of hit at some deeper depths that people who maybe come up and say, "I'm going to pick this up because it looks like a," you know. Brad Meltzer wrote right. this thing about, you know, it's going to cut you open on the inside, but like how you get address some of these bigger issues and how you approach that as compared to when you're writing yeah. literary fiction, for lack of a better term. Yeah, and you know, I, I write, I think I write crime fiction, I think I write commercial fiction, I think I've written literary fiction um, over my career, and it's using different muscles. You know, the, the books I write with Brad, which I enjoy doing a, a great deal, they, they don't do the things that I do in Gangsterland or Gangster Nation. I don't, I don't examine the larger issues of criminality in the United States, um, or the nature of criminality. The thing I think great crime fiction has always done um, is it holds a mirror up to society and shows us the worst parts of ourselves. And I think great crime fiction, stuff that I love, you know, like, a, like Mystic River, um, you know, or um, you know, Daniel Drell's Give Us a Kiss, um, or Winter's Bone, um, or old Donald Westlake novels, you know, and, and Wes is sort of a, a good example. I mean, he wrote about a hitman, but he was he was writing society's wrongs a lot of times. Um, so I try to use crime fiction as a way for me to examine the things that trouble me the most. I don't I don't write what I know most of the time. I write about the things that I'm scared of, and I feel like the things that I'm scared of, hopefully, a lot of you are scared of because I know most of you are on the same medications as me. Um, <laughs> And so, you know, I feel like crime fiction allows me entrance into, um, into fear um, and into the way all of us sort of look at the probability of bad shit happening to us. Um, you know, we, we, were, um, we were just walking over here from the, um, from the uh, parking lot behind us, and I'd forgotten uh, David's giant bottle of uh, whiskey here. And so I left Wendy and my brother here, and I went back, and I, I came around back around the corner, and there was this giant dude standing there, like, in the parking lot, and I was like, that guy looks horrifying. And he was just sort of standing there, just standing there. And I was like, well, I'm going to unlock my car, I'm going to get this bottle of scotch, and then I'm going to hope he doesn't kill me, this giant scary dude. And so I got the bottle of scotch, and, and I did that thing that I think a lot of us often do when we're really scared and think someone's going to kill us. I, I did... It's my, it's my defense mechanism. But basically it was me saying, here I am as a human being saying hello to you. Please don't fucking kill me. Um, and I think crime fiction allows me to write about those sorts of things. Um, it allows me to examine um, in more depth the, the, the way that we live in the world. Um, more than I think writing literary fiction ever did for me. Um, and you know, I, I should say that when I was writing more short fiction, writing more sort of literary crime fiction um, when I was younger, I didn't 
I didn't think that I had much to say. I just, you know, I sort of parroted what I thought I should write about. But writing these books, I feel like I have something to say and I feel like I have a, a character with which to say them. And that makes a big difference for me artistically. Um, but I could write about this character for 10 years already um, and not be tired of him. Um, sometimes I'm tired of having him in my head, like a target. And I'm like, I should not think about killing every motherfucker that walks by me. But there you go, he lives in my head. <laughs> At least you have an excuse. Right, I do have an excuse. I do have an excuse. Yes, sir. Hey, um, so if I remember from Gangsterland, it seems like you write in a lot of, you ground a lot of scenes in different characters' points of view, and I assume you're doing the same thing mm -hmm. in this point. I'm just wondering, like, narratively, like, what that does for you, uh, seeing the story from so many different characters' eyes. Well, part of it is also about boredom. Like, I always know, oh man, if I'm if I'm getting tired of writing this guy, I know that soon I can write someone else, and that that that. Fills me with joy sometimes. Um, I like to look at things from a lot of different angles because I, I think conflict affects different people different ways. And so I like to I like to look at that typical juxtaposition between protagonist and antagonist and flip it. You know, everyone is the hero of their own story. And so by writing different points of view, I'm able to have someone that was the weak character in this scene be the strong character in that scene, or someone who's being preyed upon in this scene be the person who preys upon people in that scene. And I think that ever-shifting dynamic by changing the point of view causes the reader, I hope, to question their allegiances to different characters. You know, that at any point in time, any of you who have read Gangsterland rooted for the guy who killed four FBI agents to win, that you're totally fucked up. All of you are deeply disturbed. Um, but that's you know that's what I wanted. You know I want you to start to feel the empathy of these people is because suddenly you see yourself in them. So writing from the different points of view allows me to do that. I think I hope um, allows me to um, to examine the conflict um, from a lot of different emotional angles. Um, but also I just it's fun to to have more than one person. In a story like this, because I think you can get some fatigue. If you, if it was just 400 pages of South Cooper teen Rabbi David Cohen being like, "I'm a killer, but I'm a Jew, but I'm not a Jew, but I'm a killer," like, yeah, figure it out already. The rest of us have figured it out. Um, so this, you know, it, I think it, it adds to, um, hopefully, it adds to the complexity of the story that I'm telling. Anything else before we sell books to you guys? Very important question. Yes, ma'am. He, no, he was he was always in the first draft because uh, we went to a wedding years ago where the bride and the groom quoted uh, that song, the picture song, and so I paraphrased that in in the uh, in the text. In the vows. Yeah, in the vows. So it's before he became the presumptive nominee. Yeah, before he was the, the junior senator from the state of Michigan. When he was just ripping off Leonard Skinner on a weekly basis. Yeah. He was just kid rocking up and down the block back then. Um, should we cut to the book selling part of the event? Yeah, I think that'd be a nice thing. All right. So, uh, Todd Goldberg. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, everyone, for coming tonight. I appreciate it. Five books. I will sign anything. Thank you, Skylight, for having us. Appreciate it. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. 
Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.